Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. All right. Welcome back to the Wealth Well Done podcast. I'm your host, Eric Scoville. This is episode number 10. And today we are blessed to have Tom Costello joining us. Uh, reminder here within the, the podcast, what we're doing is we're going after those tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Last week, we had Cal Rickner on as we talked about how to do a successful succession planning. And so, uh, full disclaimer, as always with this, the information that we are sharing today is meant to be uh, informative and is not meant to be financial advice to you. So if this doesn't fit your, uh, this may or may not actually fit your actual situation. So we ask you to take all this advice in as well as you, the same way you would any other advice that you'd receive on the internet, bounce this off of your own, well, maybe better than what you'd receive on the internet, but bounce this off your own financial team to apply this to your situation before you go make any decisions on your own. Um, and I, I've mentioned this before here, but our our uh, production team has told me don't spend much time talking about the background of the guest and jump in right into the meat of of what we have to talk about. The guest today has uh, a, a storied enough career, uh, a good enough uh, background that I feel like it was worth Tom sharing just a little bit of his background to establish some credibility as we get into the topics today. So, Tom Castell, will you uh, introduce yourself to the audience? I'm today, more please? than happy to. Uh, so. Uh, I started out as a quant at J.P. Morgan in the 1990s. I worked on the institutional financial side and banking side for uh, half a dozen years, and then I made a switch to what we call the buy side, which is the hedge fund world. I was a quant at uh, places like Moore Capital, Caxton Associates, and Tudor Investments. Most people don't know the hedge fund world very well, but these were three of the top 10 hedge funds in the world for 30 years, the people that run these firms are industry legends. Um, the name Paul Tudor Jones, you might have heard. Louis Bacon, you might have heard. These are a couple of the people that I work directly for. Uh, I managed money on the hedge fund side for quite a while. I was head of equity trading at about a billion dollar quant fund after those institutions. And um, I, I never had a down year in traditional finance. So I'd had months where I traded down. But during that period, I'd never had an entire down year. And that includes trading through 2008, 2009 financial crisis, where even then we managed to eke out a profit, albeit a small one. So that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, I've been involved in the hedge fund industry for a very, very, very long time. I know a great deal about it. Okay. All right. And um, for, you know, we're going to get into that, that whole piece around your, your trading record because I think that's that speaks volumes, and and just so the audience knows as well, Tom Tom is a uh, partner of ours in the in the hedge fund that we have. So we're going to spend more time next episode talking about that. Uh, but I just want to make sure you know that 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 again, Tom and I do do business together as well. Um, Tom, will you give a background? And I think as as this episode goes on, we might get more and more sophisticated with the, the conversation, but. Just to start, for someone who's maybe a who's more of a retail investor or hasn't been exposed to institutional finance, will you give a background on 
on on a high level, what is institutional finance? Sure. Well, uh, in institutional finance, there's there's different pressures on the people who participate. Institutional finance is people who manage money professionally uh, for large institutions. So all of the pension fund money in the world is managed by people in the institutional financial business. Most of that flows through either hedge funds or investment banks or both uh, or a combination thereof. Uh, all of the public pensions, most of the private pensions, all of the college endowments. There are things called family funds, which uh, are fund managers that represent the interests of various wealthy families. All of that money is pooled up and uh, is essentially managed by the same, call it 2,000, maybe 2,500 people globally that uh, make up the top tier investment banks down to about the middle level. And um, and the hedge fund world. So that's, uh, for retail people, there's, there's different pressures on people like that. One of the biggest ones in institutional finance is you can't lose money. So if someone's managing their own money, you can have a down month or a down year or whatever. You can lose 50% of your money and just extend your investment horizon. If you're willing to wait 20 years, you buy the S&P, it goes down 30%. You don't really care. Because you've got you know 19 years or 19 and a half years for it to come back, and it almost certainly will. In institutional finance, you don't really have that option. There's extreme pressure to deliver all the time. Because if you don't turn a profit, they'll get rid of you and get somebody else in there who will. So that, that changes a lot of the decision-making that people on the institutional side take on. Okay. All right. <clears throat> For the so let's talk about the way that that wealth is is managed. Because if you look at this, you say you know the majority of the wealth in the world is going to be professionally yeah, managed. More than ninety percent. Um, so way more than ninety percent. So if we yeah, so so if we talked about let's maybe first talk pension funds, and then and after that we'll go after on the individual you know family office high net worth um, style. So how are pension funds managed? Uh, well, let's t- let's start with the largest of the funds, right? That, because it's a little easier to understand where the pressures are applied. So, uh, the Sovereign sure. Wealth Fund of uh, of Finland, I believe, is uh, the second largest pool of money in the world. So, they can invest in and essentially do invest in absolutely everything. Uh, they have money dedicated to the U.S. stock market, the U.S. bond market, the U.S. derivatives market, the European markets, the in Middle Eastern markets, the emerging markets. and They have money committed basically everywhere. And their goal is to always have enough cash to pay those pensioners their dividend, right? So they can take no chances. Mm-hmm. They are highly, highly regulated as to what they can and cannot do. Um and because they're invested in everything, what they're always seeking is what's called uh, discrete alpha. It's uh, They're looking for a return, which is positive, which is uncorrelated from all the other things they're invested in, because that gives them a little bit of a hedge. If the markets go down, sometimes markets all go down together, right? So, you know, they have money in the right. U.S. market, they have money in the European market, and the Canadian stock market, and all of these markets start to fall. They've got to go somewhere, so they've got to have an investment which will be, which will gain when those lose, and that's their goal. They try and put together a diversified portfolio that includes almost every market in the world, 
um, most people don't, most individual people don't have anywhere near the resources it would take to do that kind of thing, right? But if they sure. were to say, and we're not just talking about the, the money to invest, we're talking about the money to to invest the way they that's invest. right, yeah, you, the difference there. Uh, most people, if they if they wanted to buy one share of Canadian stock and one share of U.S. stock and one share, it it just isn't enough to to make the big difference, right? Uh, they tend to focus on an individual market and retail people will tend to focus on an individual market and trade that, which I would also say is probably not a great idea for them, right? Because um, if you're trading, if you're actually engaged in actively buying and selling things and trying to time the market and get it right when it's going up and sell it before it goes down, that sort of thing, what you're really doing is you're competing in what is, for all intents and purposes, a zero-sum game where the other people who are doing it with you do it, do nothing else from seven in the morning until 10 at night, six days a week, all year, right? This is their entire job. Right. And for you, it's probably a part-time thing. Maybe you have your own business or some other thing. So to engage in trading activity for a retail person, is probably a losing bet. It's it's it, it, it there has been circumstances where people have made money at it, but not typically for very long, and uh, and it, it just doesn't work out well. It's usually a much better plan for a retail investor to be a buy and hold sort of investor. Find something you like, right. trade it more like Warren Buffett. Buy it in 2023, sell it in 2028, and you'll make plenty of money out of it. Right. I think we're going to come back to a little bit of the the uh, the demand on on hedge funds and hedge fund managers here in a second. Um, if you were to so for someone who's had limited exposure to hedge funds, uh, they you know they, they talk about hedge funds in a sense that um, <clears throat> so I'm gonna I'm gonna reference your book. So so Tom's book here, the front office. Let's see if I can get that on the video right. Um, and so so on the back of your book here. You make reference to basically what you know the Wolf of Wall Street and the picture that, that presented. A lot of people that's their exposure to hedge funds. I think that all of them are just greedy, nasty, you know, slimy people. Um, but you're basically saying the top tier of institutional trading has as little in common with a bunch of nearly illiterate stockbrokers scamming the retail clients as driving a bus on the New Jersey Turnpike does with trying to win the Monaco Grand Prix. That's very true. So, so <laughs> if you went into the um, so under, understand so many people have a very limited exposure to hedge funds and some of the people who are listening today aren't going to know much about that. Can you give us a background as to what is a hedge fund actually and what's the purpose of it? You know, why, why are, are the, you know, ultra high net worth individuals, pension funds, those people, why are they using hedge funds? Sure. So the role that hedge funds play uh, in the industry is that they are a hedge. They are, they, what they do is they deliver a return stream, a positive return stream. So you're, you're making money with a hedge fund. But in a perfect world, you would be making money in a way that is uncorrelated to other markets. So stock market goes up, stock market goes down, it makes money. Uh, crypto market goes up or down, makes money, right? What you want is something that is going to be completely independent from all of those other assets that you're buying and selling. That's what the pension funds are looking for. They literally treat hedge funds as a hedge. That, and the sector is actually called alternative assets in the institutional world. And pension funds are strictly limited, depending on the jurisdiction, to 5 or 10% maximum in alternative funds. So a hedge fund, at 
at best, best, at most, would be no more than 10% of, uh, and that's even if it's a multi-billion dollar, even if it's BlackRock, say. Yeah, it's probably where you wanted me to go in the first place. I'll get there. Uh, it is a, a dull, mostly dry business. Very, very hardworking people. I, I, uh, I always tell people I've worked with some of the smartest human beings on the face of the earth. I've been surrounded by them for most of my career. I, there's been many, many times where I didn't know anybody who wasn't a genius. Uh, these are the best educated, hardest working, most highly motivated people in the whole world, gathered up by Wall Street, dumped down into the industry to compete head on head with each other, where for those who win, it's vast wealth. So it's an extreme pressure cooker sort of environment, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with the Wolf of Wall Street. There are Nobody drives a Ferrari. Nobody, in fact, there's actually been a study that says if you hire a hedge fund manager with a boring car, he's more likely to make you money. That's how seriously these industry <laughs> takes it. There's an NYU study. You can find it online. Um, okay. So, yeah, nobody drives a Ferrari. Nobody has a supermodel girlfriend. Even the guys who are multi-billionaires and single do not run around like Elon Musk marrying you know, uh, singers. It's a very steady, low-key, very conservative industry where your reputation is nine-tenths of everything that you accomplish. If your reputation, uh, if you get a reputation as being unstable, unreliable, or doing things that are contrary to the interests of your investors, you're not going to have a career anymore. And people will go to fanatical levels to manage their credibility and manage their reputation at the top tier of the space. It really is absolutely nothing like the Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. <clears throat> we're going to get into, so moving on here, we're going to get into uh, quantitative funds. We're going to get into the banking situation, into interest rates in the Fed. But I want to just, this is a good time to, touch on the, the spiritual side of things. And so I want to go deep and personal with you here for a minute. So next week, we're going to talk more about the hedge fund that we have. But so Tom, you had been in the hedge fund industry for I think 32 years before we joined together. Banking and hedge funds uh, for 33 years. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, so here you have this, in a sense, a bit of an illustrious storybook type career here with, with not not many people can say I was able to trade for that many years and never have a down year. The so you you come on with us and we get started into the cryptocurrency industry and we'll like I said we're going to spend more time talking about that now because we we don't consider ourselves a crypto fund we consider ourselves a hedge fund that that uses the cryptocurrency industry to try to um, I'm going to I don't want to say exploit exploit the right the wrong word here but but try to find the, the abilities to generate a profit inside the that industry we'll we'll leave the details for next week the but we had last year we had a we had a down year the the cryptocurrency industry got decimated it did indeed last in, year. in lots of ways that no one could have possibly predicted correct so so in in, in a lot of senses we had you know in november we got the world's best performing hedge fund from the barclay index we've got uh, on the crypto side we We've had a lot of success along the way, avoiding the big collapses. But still, that's been a time where 
as pressure is, is turned up on the hedge fund manager and, and the struggles that last year created, how has that been on you personally and spiritually? Like, and j- so to an audience member listening to this, you might not be a hedge fund manager. You might not ha- have the pressure of, of managing institutional finance, but you certainly have pressures. You have things that you're dealing with um, as well, and they don't always go the way we okay. hoped. I had gotten into this career or into this industry as a, this was a, an answered prayer, trying to do something I feel like God is leading me into. And it has not gone storybook. It's, it you know, certainly hasn't been uh, without its obstacles. Without so can you just give a, give a, a, a piece of light to how, how this has been on the spiritual journey for you dealing with the struggles sure. that we have? Uh, not talking about the specific events. Um, no one wins every time. I, I, I rely a great deal on uh, what I view as absolute universal truth, right? The same way that you try to let your attitudes be defined by your personal relationship with Jesus. I have a personal relationship as well. And part of that relationship involves me having uh, facts that I can rely on, ways that the universe has been defined by God that aren't going to change. And part of that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I am essentially a glorified mathematician. That's what I've been for the last 30 years. And a great deal of that uh, is, is about identifying fundamental truths, things which are constant or permanent and are in essence a part of God, right? So, yeah, uh, we've had we've had a bump or two. We've had more drawdown than we would have liked. Um, less than we we could have. We managed to we managed to escape the jaws by a razor Multiple several times. times. And these were things that many others in the industry done. The, the uh, you know we go to a, a various industry events every year, and we went to one two years in a row now, and there were. You know, the first time we went, there were 75 hedge fund managers. The second time we went, there were 15, of which we were one. And that's because so many people were literally wiped out. Lost businesses were wiped out entirely. So we managed to stay ahead of that. And I I get encouragement from the fact that uh, we're, we're still in it. We're still fighting. And I know that if you do it the right way, I know, I believe that if you do it the right way, eventually it will come to you. You just have to do it the right way. That's harder than it sounds and harder than you think it's going to be. But I have an absolute faith in it. I I believe that if we strive to do the right thing, and I I don't believe we've ever had anything but the best intentions, then it will come to us eventually. And, you know, and... Not to get into the specifics, but we've had substantial successes, and we're having one of them at the moment. That some many, yep. many things that we've worked on for a very, very long time, through against overwhelming obstacles, we've managed to see to fruition. So the next few months, we expect things to be very, very encouraging. And uh, I think one the of the key is look forward, oh, right? It's the first rule of Italian right. driving: what's behind is not important. <laughs> I, I think as, as I've 
processed this and I've spent a lot of time in deep reflection through this, um, that the universal truth that's, that's been there for me is, is where my identity is. And if my identity is in the, the, uh, returns that I'm able to, you know, the, 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 the return sheet that I give a, an investor at the end of the month, if, if my identity is there, then it's a, it's a ship tossed around by the waves. And it is, it's, you know, you're only as good as the last month. And then that, that's where it stands. And it, <clears throat> for me, it had to turn into my identities in Christ. And I think that this journey has, has really helped me draw deeper to that truth that my identity is in Christ, which means if the hedge fund blew up completely, or if the hedge fund has, you know, massive success, doesn't matter. It doesn't change. It doesn't change who you are. Truth. doesn't change so, your position in the universe. I am. Um, no. You know, I, I, uh, I wrote a book about trading. It's, I, I'm pretty confident in saying it's the only trading book that's ever been written where a Catholic saint was prominently featured. So I'm pretty confident <laughs> that it's the one and only time that somebody actually mentioned uh, a Catholic theologian, Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're probably right there. <laughs> All right. Thanks for letting me go spiritual there for a second. Let's, so let's go back into... Um, what briefly? Because I want to I want to get into topics that are very relevant today. But what is a quant? And so I'm going to go. What's a quant? And then what is the difference between a, a what's a quantitative hedge fund? What are the characteristics that define a quantitative sure. hedge so, fund? Um, so a quant, a quant. That word quant has been a job description since about the time that I arrived at J.P. Morgan. Maybe the late '80s they started using that term. Uh, it describes people who have a background in physics and economics, heavy math guys who came onto Wall Street and arrived right about the same time that the personal computer did. Uh, so it used to be, if you, if any of uh, your listeners go out and buy a book on how to trade on Wall Street, they're going to buy a book that really describes pre-computer era technology, things like support and resistance and maybe Elliott waves or, or you know, DMA channels and relative strength indexes. and All of that stuff was useful in a limited way, uh, but it was all pre-computers. Once computers arrived, institutional Wall Street, the big banks and the large hedge funds, they changed everything about what they do. What they started doing was using strict mathematical discipline. If you've ever seen the movie Moneyball, what people used to do was like the agents, right? They'd go out and say, well, he's got an ugly girlfriend, but he's got a really strong arm and, you know, and we think he's got a lot of, you know, moxie, whatever moxie is, right? And uh, <laughs> and that was that was the old way. That's the way that most retail people learn how to deal with the capital markets. But what a quant does is applies absolute strict mathematical discipline. It's the law of probability and statistics. So uh, we have in the quant world we have something that's sort of a unified field theory of finance, and that goes literally like this. All of finance is a probability of discounted cash flows. That phrase describes everything in finance. There is no circumstance in finance where that phrase can't describe it. So what we do is we try to calculate the odds, the odds of this asset going up, the odds of it going down, the odds of it going up fast or slow, or going down fast or slow, the odds of uh, certain relationships changing in the markets where this one is ahead of that one, but now that one is ahead of this one. And 
what we do is we calculate the probabilities around all of those. And then we bet the way the odds say to bet. Some risks are cost very little, but have a potential to deliver a great deal. Others cost a great deal and have a potential to deliver very little. So what we try to do is we try to buy the ones that are cheap, sell the ones that are expensive. And that's pretty much it. Uh, that sounds like a really concise description, but as I know you know personally, it is a, a bewildering and broad space to actually get to know deeply. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been at it for 30, I'm a smarter than average guy. I've been at it for 33 years and there are a lot, a lot of tens of thousands of people are way better at it than I am. So it, it, it's a, it's a big, it's a big animal to try and, to try yeah. and condense into a sound bite. As far as what a quant hedge fund does, um, a, a quant hedge fund tries to separate its decision-making. So there's virtually no times where we as hedge fund managers will say, I don't, I like this, I don't like that. That opinion is, is a very little value in a quantitative hedge fund. The odds say this, the odds say that, the numbers say this, the numbers say that, the data says one thing or another, well, that's a different story. That's a strong argument for us. So our goal is to base all of our decision-making on objective and verifiable quantitative phenomena. We want to base it on the math, basically. And, uh, yeah. and you know, even that comes with lumps. You know, I don't know if you know who Cliff Asnes is, but he uh, is a CEO. I think he's retired now, but he was until very recently the CEO of uh, a quantitative hedge fund called AQR. I've never actually worked for Cliff, but I've met him a couple of times. And he, uh, his, uh, his fund is a $30 billion quantitative hedge fund. He put a tweet out the other day that said, uh, a quantitative strategy at best works a little better than half the time. So what you actually need is a bunch of different strategies that'll each work in different circumstances. And this is a uh, something that I and the rest of the quantitative industry has been saying for decades, right? If you've right. got a strategy that looks like it's going to win ninety percent of the time, that's that's more problem than solution. <clears throat> that's something maybe we'll maybe we'll hit that next week as we get into short ball and long ball and and, and breaking breaking that happy. down. Um, that was actually right. a big joke in the industry for many, many years. Whenever somebody brought up short fall, everybody looked up for me because I must be complaining about it. <laughs> All right. So let's get into, let's see with how much time we have. Let's, we'll, we'll see if we can get in at both here. Um, but let, let's go up to the banking industry sure. right now. Um, so, so obviously, I'm sure most of the listeners have probably fairly well versed in everything that, that's happened in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, what we're talking about institutions at such a high level, and you and I have had plenty of conversations. Not all institutions are created the same, not all, well, obviously that, but even not all institutional investors are created Very the true. same. And, and obviously Silicon Valley is not trying to present the same um, risk management that, that all institutions are, but we know that they've certainly failed uh, with, with where they, how they manage their assets. Can you go after a little bit of, um, let's go after row risk here. But so we, so we always say that we we're trying to be beta neutral, gamma neutral, row positive. Can you go after row risk, what that actually is? And then, and where, where the bank, where the banking situation probably sure. sits today? So, 
uh, in one of the big separating uh, lines are in, in capital markets trading are those people who were trained at a large investment bank like Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, which is where I was trained, or Morgan Stanley, or and those who were not. For those people who have been through those big bank training programs, it's really the best possible financial education you could get. Uh, and I think on the second day of the training program, they said that rule number one in a bank is you do not lend long and borrow short. Because when interest rates go against you, when interest rates go up, you're going you're gonna to be caught out. You're going to be stuck. And that's literally what happened in Silicon Valley Bank. They broke the very, very, very first rule of banking, which absolutely everyone in the industry is taught on day one of their arrival in the space. Uh, I, I can understand that. And that circles around to row risk. So you said beta neutral, gamma neutral, row positive. And that is beta neutral is when the market goes up, that's positive, and beta when it goes down, that's negative. So we want to be neutral. We don't want to care if it goes up or down. Gamma has to do basically with speed. Is it going up quick or is it going up slow? Is it going down quick or down slow? That speed is gamma. Uh, rho is sensitivity to interest rates. And we want to be rho positive. All banks do. Which means you want to make just a little bit more money as interest rates rise. There's lots of reasons for that because, you know, the the uh, the industry typically is slowing down as interest rates rise. There's less business being conducted, so you need to make a little bit more per unit of business. Uh, and you don't want to get held out in what's called duration risk, where you know you have to pay a lot of people cash today, but you're not going to have cash available for three months or six months or a year or five years or whatever. Right. Silicon Valley Bank was buying treasuries, so it's not like the bonds were useless. The problem was a bunch of people showed up at the door at the same time demanding their cash. And the only way they could provide it was by selling the treasuries. When you sell those treasuries, you drive the price of the remaining treasuries down. So they get themselves in a lot of trouble that way. And, and, and yeah, it's the banking industry is like any other industry. Some, you know, like the auto industry is a good example. Some people make a really great car. Some people make a not so great car. Some people make, you know, varying prices of cars or whatever. The banking industry is the same way. Firms like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley are viewed as the top one, two, or three banks in the world in terms of risk management across any spectrum of measurement. Regional banks are typically a little less skilled at quantitative risk management, which all 100% of the banking industry engages in. And Silicon Valley Bank was unique because it had one flavor of customer. The only kind of customer it really did well with was startups. Startups, you know, they have their own issues. One thing that's unusual in the startup industry is they fail at a staggering rate. Some of them, you know, nine out of 10 startups will fail, right? And the industry knows that and they manage that risk appropriately, but to be a bank catering to just that industry, it left them a little bit more exposed than others. So not to say anything critical of the specific people that did it or the, the things they emphasized, but there's an old axiom that if you, if you worry about something other than profitability and careful risk management, you're almost certainly going to get something other than profitability and careful risk management. And that's, that's yeah. what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. As far as the interest rate situation, that's the fact. 
We'll, uh, I think we'll save that one for, for next week. I think we're, we're going to be about to time here. So we're going to, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to use that as a hook um, to bring to bring you guys back for next week. So Tom Costello, longtime industry quant, off, author of The Front Office. Um, Tom, I appreciate you joining here. Always appreciate you fun. sharing some insight into institutional finance. Next week, we are going to um, spend some time diving into not only the Fed's position currently with interest rates and and how they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, we will go over the crypto industry as a as a whole um, for someone looking at investing, for someone who's already invested, seen seen uh, the wild uh, fluctuations to their account balance as of last year, and then what's happening, and try to help help people figure out how to smell out the the real players in that in that industry as well so uh, thank you for joining and see you next week thank you again for listening to wealth well done be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player and together we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well